Our teaching for this evening comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land, and it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would, not have, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good to be with you all tonight. Um, My name is Adam Venable. If you are new or visiting tonight, our uh, pastor who is usually preaching is away. And so please stick around for at least three more Sundays so that you can hear our head pastor preach. But I'm the campus minister over at UAB nearby. And I was in the doctor's office about two weeks ago. I had a pain in my left shoulder for about six months, and kept trying to figure out what it was, kind of self-diagnose it. It just wasn't working. And so, finally I went to the doctor, and of course he knew what it was, and he knew the cure, you know, what I needed, and 
gave me a shot of cortisone in my shoulder, and just like that, I felt pretty good. Um, isn't that amazing that we live in a time where God has gifted people like that and given us the technology to where he can diagnose what is wrong, put, you know, put his finger right on it when you couldn't, and then give you the cure. Um, even in the Bible, um, the picture of a doctor and sickness and medicine, th- those are pictures of salvation that Jesus uses. There's that famous line from Christ from the Gospels where he says that, those who are well have no need of a physician. Where he compares sickness to sin and the physician to Christ himself. who's come you know, to give the medicine to save us from our sins. And Jesus even uses Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, to talk about his mission to come do this. Jesus thinks about his mission in the world in terms of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And so we're going to look briefly tonight at a couple of things from this passage from Isaiah, what it means for the mission of Christ. Uh, The two things are the diagnosis and the cure. The diagnosis and the cure. So... First, the diagnosis, and you see this first in verse 1, where it says, The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so, the thing to see here is that it's because of Isaiah's experience. Let me get a drink of water. It's because of Isaiah's experience that his message, his diagnosis, has authority. The beginning of Isaiah, the first uh, chapter, is kind of a summary of the whole book. It's Isaiah and the Lord almost looking back on Isaiah's whole ministry of probably over 40 years. Isaiah was a very, very old man when he finally died. And he lived through these, the lives of these kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so... It is Isaiah's experience of living through warfare and famine and king after king that gives this diagnosis, and the Lord is speaking through him, great authority. Um, But the authority, you also see it uh, in verse 2, the authority of the diagnosis. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And the thing to see here is that it's because God is the source of everything. That's why this diagnosis should have authority for us. That's why he uses that phrase, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. God is trying to remind us that it's because I made everything. Sunsets and rivers and the Grand Canyon. And I made food and sex. And I made music. I'm the source of heaven and earth. Everything. The diagnosis that I'm about to give you, listen to it, pay attention, I know what I'm talking about. And you see this um, even more so, it's, it's not just that because God made us that we should pay attention, that the diagnosis has authority, but it's also because God has become a, like a tender father to us. You see that um, in, in verse 2 where he says, the Lord has spoken, he calls them children. You know, this is the God that could have just intimidated them and yelled at them and instead he says you are my children I love you please listen to me and so it's for those reasons that we should give this diagnosis a great deal of authority 
Not because um, God has met kind of our standards of what we think right and wrong is or what his qualifications should be. But God is saying, no, listen to me. I'm the source of everything and I love you. I've adopted you. I've adopted you into my family. Please pay attention to this diagnosis. It's a Red Mountain Church. Um, do you listen when God speaks? And, you know, not just when the preacher's talking, but do you listen to God speaking in His Word? Do you take it seriously? And if we're honest, of course there are many times that we don't, right? If we're honest, there are many times we do not treat God speaking to us with the authority that it should. Have we forgotten why God has authority? Maybe that's why we're not listening. Because we've forgotten the authority behind what he's saying and why he has authority. Okay, second thing about the diagnosis is that there's a history of it. A history. It says in verse 3, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The first thing to see here is that sin has a history of making us forget where we belong. Sin is a history of making us forget where we really belong. And that's that's the image of this donkey and this ox, right? The donkey and the ox, they have a mindset of attachment and dependence. And they know... That's where I go. That's where I belong. It's, it's automatic with animals. that They do it by instinct. Uh, there's the children's song. You know, the cat came back the very next day. That's what animals do. They come back. They come back to their master. They come back to their owner. And what God is saying is that what is abnormal with animals has become the status quo in Israel. It had become the status quo in Israel that they don't know that they belong to God. They don't know that that's where, they, that's where their home should be, is in God. And of course that's true for, for sin in general. That's what it does to us. It makes us forget where we belong. And he emphasizes this with these four contrasts uh, in verse 4. He says, uh, you're a sinful nation. right? You're supposed to be a holy nation, but you're a sinful nation. You're supposed to be a free people, but instead you're heavy with iniquity. You're supposed to be a godly offspring, and instead you're an offspring of evildoers. You're supposed to be different, God's children, but instead you're children who are dealing corruptly. What you are and what you should be, who I made you to be, this is who your identity is, and who you have become. God is contrasting those. Um, Will uh, talked about this in Galatians a little bit just recently. The verse in Galatians that says, O foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit... Do you now want to continue in the flesh? Sin has a history of making us forget where we belong. In God, we stray. Um, He keeps going in verse 5. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores... And raw wounds. They're not pressed out or softened up with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. 
In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. The thing to see here is that sin has a history of blinding us to the misery of it. In other words, sin is really miserable, but it has a way of convincing us that it's not. And that whatever suffering we're experiencing in our life, there's no way it has to do with my own sin. No way. So sin says, right? Whatever pain and heartache and suffering in my life I'm experiencing, it must have been caused by things out there. You people out there, or uh, you who I live with, or you who I work with. Sin wants to convince us that it's, it's not miserable. My sin's not miserable, so sin says. And th- that's the image in verse 5. Um, it's, it's sort of literally, look, you're being beaten again. Why are you rebelling again? You're being disciplined by the Lord. Your cities are ruined. Uh, your nation has been ravaged because of your sin. Why do you keep doing it? Because sin has blinded you, Isaiah says to Israel, to the fact that it's your sin that has caused this misery on you. That's what sin does, right? Not just in Israel, but it's a universal experience. We underestimate How much pain in our lives is caused by our own hard heart? We underestimate it. He continues in verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What he's saying here is that sin also has a history of almost getting the last word. Sin has a history of nearly completely snuffing the life out. Um, it's, it's kind of a strange image um, to us, but this a, a booth and a vineyard or a lodge and a cucumber field. The idea is a worker who's gone into the field and he is spending a long time harvesting. And so he's kind of put up a little hut in the middle of the field. It's temporary. It's flimsy. It's not going to last long. And he's saying, that's what sin does to people. That's what sin has done to you, Judah. It has made you flimsy. It has made you powerless. And he goes on to say, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Without God's mercy, sin would be the end of us. Without God's mercy, sin would have been the end of Adam Venable. And everyone at Red Mountain Church, we're a testimony that God's mercy was greater than our sin. God's justice might have treated us like Sodom and Gomorrah, famous for sin, right? Justice demanded one thing, but God's mercy said, no, 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 no. I'm going to save those people. We're not going to snuff the life out. Their sin is great, but my mercy is greater. There's a history to this diagnosis. Last thing about the diagnosis is that there's a hiddenness to it. There's a hiddenness to the diagnosis. He says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. That's pretty strong language. He he called them his children at the beginning of the passage. Now he's saying... uh, 
you rulers of Sodom. He's speaking to Judah. He's speaking to his people, you people of Gomorrah. And the thing to see here is that God has reserved the strongest language for those whose sin is most hidden. God reserves the strongest language for those whose sin is the most hidden. This diagnosis is hard to spot. You see this in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, right? Who does the Lord Jesus have the strongest language for? You brood of vipers. He even turns to Peter and he calls him Satan at one point. The apostle Peter. He calls Satan. God reserves the strongest language for those whose sin is the most hidden. Behind religious and moral energy. It's like camouflage that hides our sin, right? And this is the great temptation in the church. um, To not be able to see the diagnosis that that God has for us. Because it's hidden. Our sin is often hidden behind uh, moral and religious energy. And he keeps going. Um, It says in verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs, or of lambs or of goats. In Israel at the time, there was this whole sacrificial system which was good and right, and God had commanded them to do. A lot like God has commanded Red Mountain Church to come here on Sunday and to be involved in a community group, and you know, to love your family, and all kinds of good things, right? Those are good things in Israel. And God is saying, I've had enough of it. I've had enough. Stop. Because all this moral energy is just masking your sin. It's just all a way to hide. He's not saying those things are bad. He's just saying that if we harden our hearts towards God, then those things don't don't matter to God anymore. He doesn't care about them. He keeps going. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed, appointed feasts My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Literally, God is saying, when you were coming, expending all this moral and religious energy, I'm not even listening to anything that you're saying. Um... And this is the great temptation of of being in the church and the great deception of the flesh, right? Not just of non-Christians, but Christians too who have sin in the flesh still in us. Our sacrifices that we make for God often hide our own sin. Um, It's like if you've ever said this to to a friend of yours, you know, do you realize what I have done for you? How dare you ask anything of me? Don't you see the sacrifices that I have made? Don't you see what I have done? How dare you ask me to do anything more for you? And God is saying, this is the same mindset that sin in the flesh brings towards God. 
Lord, how dare you ask me to have a real relationship with you? We are honest with each other. Don't you see the way that I have loved my family? Everything I do at church, how dare you? And God is saying, this was Israel's sin. And he's saying, I'm not listening. You can just stop. You can just stop going to church. Stop going to community group. Just stop. I'm, I'm not listening. And finally, the, the end of the diagnosis, and verse, you have to kind of skip down to verse 20. It says, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What he's saying here is just, if, if we will not accept God's diagnosis, if we will not receive God's mercy, the prognosis is grim. This, this path that we're on of kind of saying that we have a relationship with God and, and being very uh, energetic in terms of being moral and religious, all the while having a hard heart, that road doesn't lead anywhere good. The end of that path is not a place that we want to be. He talks about it in terms of being eaten by the sword. I mean, that is a, uh, that's a biblical image, isn't it? Of biblical proportions. It's an image that even Jesus used, you might remember. In the book of Revelation, he says that he is the one from whom his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, Christ says to the, the church in Pergamum, These are the words of him who has a sharp, two-edged sword. And our Heavenly Father is telling us this, not just because he's trying to shame us. Right? How did the the passage start out? You're my children. Please listen to me. I have made everything good, and I love you. I have come to give you this diagnosis, not to overwhelm you and destroy you, but because I love you. I want you to see what's wrong care about you. I want to give you the medicine. Please accept my diagnosis. Okay, the cure. Um, The first thing to see here is washing. And you see this in verse 16. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And I think the cease to do evil part of verse 16 really fits better with verse 17, so we'll we'll get to that in a second. But the first thing to see is that the fundamental thing is that they don't need to do more. They don't need to go to church more often. They don't need to change from like simply going to community group to hosting it. They don't need to uh, fill in the blank. They don't need to do more. This is not the problem. He says, you must wash yourselves. And to us, that can just sound like maybe vague religious imagery, but in Israel it meant something very, very specific, which was to accept the washing that only the priest could give. Only the priest could wash them. And so this washing for us in New Testament times is to receive and and, and to appropriate the washing that only Jesus Christ can give us. We are passive. Go wash yourselves and receive washing from the blood of Jesus Christ. If your sin has a long, long history, long history, you are the kind of person that God wants to wash and cleanse. You're the kind of person that God is saying, I'm going to remove the evil deeds of you from before my eyes. 
not going to see him anymore. I want to wash you. I want to cleanse you. Christ does have a sword. But he is also called the lamb who was slain. The lamb who was slain for my sins and for your sins. He's calling everybody just to put down their, their moral and religious energy and be washed and be cleansed by him. If I'm already a Christian, why do I need to be cleansed? And we see this every week when we do the confession of sin and assurance of pardon here at Red Mountain Church, is that when you become a Christian, you are justified. All your sins are washed and cleansed, past, present, and future, totally clean. So if I'm a a Christian, why, why would I need to be forgiven again or washed again? And it's because we're in a real relationship with God. In a a real relationship where we still sin against him. Where we still offend him. Not as our judge, but as our heavenly father. Which is kind of what makes our sins all the worse. Because we know better. We know the love of God. And so if you're a Christian, God is saying to you, you have got to go confessing your sins every day. Remind yourself that you were washed Your identity is not changing. You're not washed, unwashed, washed, unwashed, one day to the next. That remains the same. But God reminds you of his love for you and that you are, in fact, washed when we go to him confessing our sins. Second thing about the cure is obeying. Uh, The end of verse 16, we're going to stick in here. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. There's two groups of three here. You've got cease and learn and seek in the first group. The thing to see here is that there are these three, um, uh, these, these three uh, elements of obedience that's a part of the cure. He says you've got to stop rebelling. Stop. You've got to learn a new mindset. He means this. Uh, learn to do good. You've got to seek different goals. You've got to come up with new goals. The next three. He says you've got to correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. And um, one pastor called it the, the quartet of the vulnerable. You see throughout the Bible these four types of people. Widows, orphans, the poor, and sojourners. And here you've got uh, the fatherless and widows mentioned. And it's not that following Christ involves only doing these things. God's not saying, yeah, yeah, the Ten Commandments, I know about all that. I want you to forget about all that and just do these two things. Care about widows and orphans. That's not what God is saying. But throughout Scripture, the church's care... For widows, orphans, the poor, sojourners, they're kind of a litmus test that if you're doing these things, the other things are happening too. Um, I don't have time to talk about them all, and so I just want to focus in for just a moment on the fatherless in verse 17. Bring justice to the fatherless. Does the Bible call all people God's children? Does the Bible say that everybody all across the earth is God's child? The Bible says that everybody is your neighbor. Uh, Everybody is made in the image of God. 
everybody is a part of God's creation, whoever they are. But the Bible says that in order to become God's child, for him to be a father to you, something special has to happen in your life. That we all show up orphans, right, dead in our transgressions, and that something special happens when God cleanses us of our sins and adopts us into his family. Such that the way you treat the fatherless, the way you treat orphans, it's kind of a gauge for whether or not you understand the gospel, the fact that you've been adopted in Jesus. And on the one hand, it would be very tempting to go, that just seems impossible. I don't really know many orphans or any, um, so I'm just going to kind of ignore that. Because it just seems too hard. The other thing that would be bad to do is to go, man, if I don't save all the orphans, I don't, I think, I don't think God's going to love me. And I think I, I, he might, there's no hope if we can't save all the orphans. Which is to put all the pressure on you as if you're God and you can save all the orphans. We don't want to go that route either. What's the path that Jesus would call us towards? And... Some of you, uh, maybe God is calling you to go and and adopt an orphan. Um, Others of us, it might look something more like um, getting to know a family that has foster kids and committing to praying for that foster kid and bringing them dinner once a month. It could look like a whole bunch of different things. God has not called you all to adopt children from Madagascar. I just picked that country at random. Right? He hasn't called us all to do that. But he has caused us to, to, to embody the values that what Jesus has done for us. God adopted me into his family when I was an orphan. I've got to start praying and think of, thinking about orphans. Because I see myself in orphans, right? What I would be had God not adopted me. Um, I'm going to end with this. So we've talked about the diagnosis, the cure. The last thing he says here in verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Um, Red Mountain Church, do you believe that God wants you, he, he longs for you to eat the good of the land. The Old Testament pictures salvation primarily in physical terms, right? In the New Testament, we have more revelation and we have God's promise to shower on us His Holy Spirit such that when we walk in the power of the Spirit, we can eat and taste and know that the Lord is good. As we humble ourselves and accept his diagnosis of us that I'm the biggest problem in my marriage. I'm the biggest problem in my, in, in my church. I'm the biggest problem at work. Not somebody else out there. I am. He wants us to taste and see that he is good as we, as we drink from the cure that he has provided uh, to be washed. Um, he has done major surgery in our hearts. Uh, our great physician has. 
Um, and there's a rehab program. And it's not optional, uh, God's divine rehab program. You've got to do it. Um, he wants us to seek and to obey and to turn away. And so, as we close tonight, I would just invite you to, to pray with me. Um, let's pray that God would help us to do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do look to you to do things in us that we cannot do in ourselves. When we look at ourselves, we are so easily discouraged. We don't see much faith and we don't see much fruit. Uh, Sometimes it feels like there's none at all. But we do cast ourselves on your mercy and on your grace. And we ask you to, to open our eyes to our sin, help us to hate it. And to help us to receive uh, your mercy and your cleansing, that we might uh, be given life to care about the vulnerable um, and to taste and see that you are indeed good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.